Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to the Forum. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. I've got a great guest today. Can't wait to introduce you to him. But first, I got a quick run up, as you know. Just want to give a big shout out to people who've been donated to the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. This is my ministry. It's a podcast ministry, and it's also a retreat and a prayer ministry. And it's a way of bringing joy and hope and inspiration and awakening to a world that is, in my view, in need of it. <laughs> So I really appreciate that. If you want to be on my newsletter, please, you can subscribe at thespiritualforum.org. And I think that's about it. Oh, yeah. I have a survey. So I'm asking my listeners to tell me what you think about the podcast. That survey is available on thespiritualforum.org. Or if you receive the newsletter, it's right at the top. Just two-minute survey to give me some feedback because I'm completely open. Really glad you're all here. So let me introduce you to my guest, Zach Lovas. He's the co-founder of Vegan Travel Asia by Voyages, which is a team of five friends from four different countries and different faiths who came together to create vegan tours that focus on bridging cultural gaps through cultural immersion with local communities while enjoying 100% local vegan food along the way. Starting with three trips in 2004, they now organize over 20 tours a year in nine countries. Collaborating with local communities, they develop tours that are environmentally friendly, socially impactful, vegan, and cruelty-free. Can't beat that. <laughs> that sounds fabulous. They also invest 50% of their profits into the communities that they work with through programs focused on social impact, animal welfare, environmental sustainability, education, and conservation. They are two-time recipients of Asia's Responsible Tourism Award, and they've received a whole bunch of other awards. <laughs> I'm not going to list them all here because they'll be here all day, but a few of them are Best Tour Operator in the USA, Best Sustainable Tour Op Company in the USA, Best Use of Sustainability in Culinary Travel, and there's a whole bunch more. So welcome, Zach. Thanks, Carol. Very great, great to be here. So very nice to meet you. And, and very, I feel honored that you gave me the opportunity to be on your podcast. So thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. So the story behind this, before we kind of go into your story, is I do an annual retreat at Unity Village. And it's a, it's a whole planet spirituality retreat. And this is, we're in our third year. And this is really about bringing people who have some kind of spirituality to Unity Village. And it's Unity Village because that's where my ordination is, at least one of them. And the founders of Unity practice ethical vegetarian living back in the early 1900s. And it was really about spiritual development and, and what, what we need to do to attain world peace and unconditional love and from, from very much from a spiritual standpoint. So I, I have a retreat there every October. And it's really a treat for people who are practicing vegans, or they are aspirational vegans, or we just had a whole bunch of non-vegans come this past year. And it was really, really great because we were just a loving community and we, we just learned a lot and had great food and, and really appreciated the animals and all of that. Not meaning to, to 
to focus on my retreat. But one of the people who've been at the retreat the last two years emailed me and said, I just got back from this great, great tour. And I hope you can interview Zach for your podcast. And so I'm like, okay, okay. So I contacted you. So that's how, how we got you on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I, your retreat sounds great, actually. I want to come on your retreat. So I, I'd like I, to know I, when the date. <laughs> yeah, I'll send, I'll send it to you. It, it really is unique. It's very, very unique. It's, it's, it's in the heart of the nation instead of the coasts, you know, so everyone thinks they're going to go retreat in California, New York or Florida or Vermont or something, you know, and it's, a, it's right there in Missouri, <laughs> but it's a beautiful nice. place and it, it is very, I'll send you all the information about that. Thank you. So uh, anyway, I really want to start, as I usually do, is to, to ask you to tell me your story, your story, the, the, your spiritual story or the story of you getting to where you are today. And, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're not going to be here all day hearing your story. So whatever the, whatever the touchstones are, and I'd also like to hear about some of the spiritual roots and, and, those, and all of that too. So I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Okay. It, it's, it's a long journey, but I'll make it very short. And it's an evolving journey, <laughs> as we know. So all of our spiritual journeys are evolving journeys. And I won't even say that we evolved annually. We evolve daily, as you know. So, uh, But g going back to the beginning, not really to the beginning, but uh, basically it started when I was before 14, but 14, I think I, I realized the biggest transformation. And that was when I became vegetarian. And uh, before that, I, I became vegetarian originally for the animals. And obviously that is my has been my motivation when people ask you why are you vegan is it for this or that or what have you no it's it's for the animals i i've always loved animals and then at like many of us at the age of 14 it was like when i'm starting to make my own decisions and i wasn't just going to follow along with what everybody else was saying so that's when it began and i did not i did not fit in anywhere when i was growing up so even as a young kid it was the conflict between like many of us go through we can't see ourselves fitting in so we try to fit in and there must be something wrong with us because we're thinking things differently. We don't, you know, we don't think and go in this direction. And so I kind of, I didn't run away, but it was kind of like running away. I, I left school early. I started as a, a writer in children's television, and that was to get away from the, my background and where I grew up in. I grew up in a very conservative, very conservative at that time. It's changed quite a bit now, a very conservative Orange County, California. At that time, it was like ranked as one of the most conservative counties in the United States. And so I, I ran away to Hollywood, like many people do. And I thought that I could be, in, uh, as a storyteller, could, you know, you could change the world through films, which films are a great medium as, as, as our books and music and everything else. And so that's when I first became vegetarian was at 14 years old because I loved animals. And then my journey went from there and I, I went, went, I was mostly vegan, but went completely vegan over a decade and a half ago. And it's continued in that, in that direction. So how I got involved as far as on the spiritual level, I'm, I would say if, if I was going to be categorized as anything, a practicing Buddhist and more focused in the Theravada Buddhism. And I didn't come to Buddhism until much later in my life, even though I was I learned about it when I was young. I, actually, I first learned about it when I was in third grade. My third grade teacher at that time said that Buddhists were devil, satanic devil worshippers. Oh, and my. so Yeah. So and anybody else that wasn't a practice, again, Orange County, California. So anybody that wasn't a practicing Christian in certain schools of Christianity was all kind of grouped into that category. And then when I saw a couple of, of the kids in the classroom that I knew that were that were Buddhist, but obviously would never say that they're Buddhist because they were living there. So I went back and I checked it out and I looked in the books and I thought, okay, the first thing I need to do is find find the Ten Commandments of Buddhism, right? And I did. And I saw the five priests. 
And those, the five precepts I looked at and I was like, well, the first one is abstain from killing, no, abstain compassion for all living beings. And then I went down the list of them and I was like, well, there's a lot of similarities here to the Ten Commandments. And at the same time, there's nothing here that really looked like the, the path of Satan. So that immediately made me start questioning everything. So yes, yeah, so then I, and I went to eventually, so 14, went into writing for children's television full time. And then, and then in, when I was 18, I got a, a film project opportunity to go to India. And at that time, nobody else in our, our company wanted to go. The idea of leaving Hollywood to go spend six months in India was a frightening prospect for many people. To me, it got me further away from where I grew up. So I was like, as, as my parents used to say, you couldn't have went any further without coming back towards, you know, towards Orange County, because it's literally on the other side of the world. And I went there and the first time in my life, as I was, I was where I was based to do the project was in a Sufi village. And obviously the preconceived notions I had of Islam at that time and I'll say again, growing up as a kid in conservative Orange County, California. <laughs> so and what I had as the interpretation of what Islam was, was very, very different than what I actually realized what it was. And then this was a, a, the Sufi school of Islam, the village that I was living in. It was right also next to a Sri Lankan Tamil refugee camp. And I was living in this, this, this basically hostel because people from the village, this was the only place where there was a, a, a higher, like a higher secondary school and then a, a polytechnic area where people could learn a trade nearby. So the kids... The youth, I would say, would come in. They're my same age. I'm saying kids. They would come in from the different villages and everything. They would live in this kind of concrete hostel. And we, uh, the room was basically no glass on it. And there was a hole in the floor for the toilet in the corner. And there was mosquitoes. And there was everything that that I should have. Uh, people were telling me that, oh, you're going to not last the six months there. And it was actually the first good sleep I ever had in my life. It was the first time in my life I actually felt like, I was somewhere that was safer emotionally, if that makes sense, than what I grew up Interesting. in. And I never went back after that. I mean, I went back, obviously, but I, from then on, I lived full-time in, in, in Asia. And, and, and then my spiritual, my spiritual journey kind of developed from that point on even more and in all different directions. But yeah. So, and then my, my more, that's it in a nutshell. I hope I didn't go on too long there. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That's all right. Some people go on for 30 minutes. That's too long. So that's so interesting. I mean, I mean, that's such a big shift to go just to India and then feel comfortable right away. Very, very yeah. interesting. And in terms of your story, it, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's similar to mine at all. I didn't go to India, but I became vegetarian at age 15. And it was, mm -hmm. you know, I just remember that, I remember that moment in my kitchen of my home and it was in St. Louis and telling my mom, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. I'm not going to eat animals anymore. And it's, it, I don't know why it took me so long, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I think there's, there's something about being a teenager and not, you know, feeling maybe I had a voice or something, but, but it, it, you know, the, the disconnect went on for a long, long time and it was, it was a really good choice. It took me a lot longer to, to, to go vegan, but I do want to kind of get to this this going to India. So how how old were you when you went to India? 18. 18. That's young. Yeah. That's really young. Yeah. Okay. You're writing shows for television at 18? Children's well, television? Yes, I was writing okay. shows and then the film at, at at a young age. Yeah. That, that was me running away like I guess, a lot of people that I was even working with that they were older but a lot of us had the runaway story. <laughs> you know, the story right, running away right. 
That was that's fascinating. So you're 18 in India. I mean, to me, the culture's so different, everything's so different, but you didn't feel overwhelmed or anything like that. Oh, which is weird because I thought I was trying to convince myself that I, I I needed to because again that idea that I always being having these feelings especially that you know you you love animals, you want to protect this, you want all these kind of things and not you, you didn't the whole kind of social structure, the bully and all that, you didn't really get into that whole you know, the whole kind of social structure that you have going to school. Uh-huh. And then that kind of is, I would just say, uh, forced at some of the, by the adults. And, and I would even say, in, in, again, where I grew up by the religious institutions. So everything was kind of a conflict. It was trying to find how do I fit into that? There must be something wrong with me. And then yes. all of a sudden there, I, I was this person that was very different from anyone else that was there. But at the same time, there was this whole, I, when we would sit down and we would talk and this whole kind of more idea of acceptance and not in conflict with who I am, even though we're different, but wanting to know about each other more and being accepted in to different people's, you know, communities and to their, and to their societies. And it was something that I never, never had. And, and, and loads of misconceptions that were put into my head, I'll say programmed because that's pretty much what it sure. is, isn't it? I, yep. Mm-hmm. That, were, that was put into my head before is like, well, that was a lie. They had no idea, and and I don't, and I don't, in 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 defense of the teachers and and and, and the community I grew up with, I don't think it was anything intentional. Most of the time, actually, I I think it was completely unintentional. It was just they did not know, and so they were told something, and they believed it, and then they would pass what they were told on to somebody else, and and so it's just that they didn't know, and so even it wasn't an anger part; it was more of a part that wow, life is actually can be. And, and, and these differences and everything that we looked at as differences uh, or we were taught were differences are, is so much more beautiful than, than what we were and, and so much more full of, I would say, love and, 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 and acceptance than, than a lot of what was put into, our, put into my head. And it wasn't a conflict in it, but the idea of then just being open to that and, 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 having, that, and, and having that moment, or I would say moments, just it. It, it felt right, if that makes sense, because it wasn't this constant internal fight. And so yeah. it felt like I never want to go back to that, you know, and, and then just the opposite. I wanted to learn more. I was like, there's so much more to learn. There's so much more I want to learn rather than so much I want to step, you know, walk around and try to judge or fit, see if something fits into this box or this box or that box. But so much more that I wanted to learn it, and it actually opened the whole in my mind. It opened the world up to me in, in, in a big way. Yeah, so that's why it felt so comfortable because I didn't I didn't have that at all growing up. That's so interesting. So I want to go on to what the next step is, but I, there's a few things I want to reflect reflect on here. F- first of all, I mean, I have learned on my spiritual journey that this mm-hmm. feeling that I don't belong. Because I've, I've had this most of my life. I don't belong here. I don't belong here. These people aren't my people. I don't belong. They don't understand me. I used to think that that was some sort of a this horrible feeling. Like this, I don't like it. I want to get rid of this feeling. And and it's really fairly recently where I have learned that I don't belong. That that conclusion can really be empowering because it's telling you you don't belong here. You belong. <laughs> you know, it's okay if you don't belong here. Find where you do feel like you belong. And that sounds like what happened with you. Like you didn't belong in Orange County with, with all, of, all of that was going on. But you did find that even with all the differences, you did belong somewhere else. And I, I don't mean that we should all be seeking, you know, where do I belong? Because I'm not sure there's ever a place where I'm going to feel 100% <laughs> comfortable around all of, all of my people. But that feeling, I think, can be 
can be a positive and informing feeling because it directs you to where you need to go, which is not where you're feeling those feelings. The other thing I want to reflect on yeah. is the conditioning. You know, yes, you were brainwashed. Yes, I was brainwashed. We've <laughs> the whole education system, yeah. all the systems, we are constantly fed lies lie after lie after lie. Yeah. Anybody who listens to me, anybody who's been a part of my ministry knows a big part of it is awakening to all of these lies. You know, it's, it, you're right. It's not like everyone was waking up and going, you know, how can I lie to this child today? But we do continually mm -hmm. pass on information and customs and, and prejudices and beliefs and, and all. And our job on the spiritual path is to question every single one of them. And so yeah. you find yourself in India with this completely, you know, you're seeing these different religions, you're seeing these different kinds of people. And, and maybe where you came from, there were these judgments on these people. And you're saying, that's not what I thought. That's not, you know, yes. this is something different. Yeah. Yes. Very, very and, interesting. And used, and used a good word, liberating. And it felt so liberating to know that because it was like, wow, this whole time when I'm feeling so uncomfortable about myself growing up and how I'm thinking, and it, I must, you know, I must be being possessed by something or someone because I'm thinking like this or, or, or I, yes. I must be my things are totally wrong or whatever it may be. It was liberating to like, wow, you know, I, I was, this was wrong what they were telling me. This was not correct. This was not, you know, and it, that all of a sudden that this cloud kind of opened up and I saw blue skies. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. It's like, it's yeah. like, you know, like I, I think I, before we started, I talked about how unity, we interpret the Bible metaphysically. It's like the Red Sea parted. <laughs> it's like, exactly. it's like, yeah. exactly. It's like you had the huge block, but now, and now you've got a clear path. So here you are in yes. India. You end up doing this travel stuff. Do you want to talk yes. a little bit about your five friends from the four different countries and how you got to that? Or is there more you want to talk about in between well, where we left off in there? Well, yeah. Well, the travel stuff that I came about, we've, I've been, I'm not saying only been doing it, but only been doing it for 19 years. And, and before that, I went on film project and I got on one other film project after another both involved with film and media and, and distribution. And, and so I, I, years ago, I burned out on that. I completely burned out. And the, and the, and the biggest reason that I burned out is of the, of, the, of the, whether it's a media story or a film story or news, what we were helping to facilitate, people would come over with preconceived notions. And, and this was all happening while I was in Asia. They come over with preconceived notions and there could be 10 truths and they would pick the two or three truths in there that backed up their hypothesis or whatever their news story. And, and I can tell you from any production company or news agency that I worked with, they were all guilty of this. I did not, sadly, I did not work with one. I wish I did, uh, or maybe I didn't because then I wouldn't have burnt out, but that, that all had these preconceived notions and they would take, again, of their 10 truths, they take like the three that backed it up. And even if the other seven contradicted it, they were like, okay, we're not going to even look at that. No, no, no. We're not going to even touch on that. We're not going to even present that side. And then, so then when that was happening in areas where there was conflicts or whether it's, you know, whether ethnic conflicts, communal conflicts, whatever it may be, capitalist conflicts, I mean, I, we can go down the list. I was helping to facilitate that. And I was a part of that, I will say that part of that machine. And obviously I know if I remove myself from that machine, it, there's plenty of people that were just going to come in and put themselves into that position. So I know, but I just couldn't wake up and, 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 and do that anymore. So the one part that myself and, and a couple of my partners liked still doing is that we enjoyed telling stories. We enjoyed the storytelling part. And more so, we enjoyed the bridging of cultural gaps between the foreign units that would come over and, and the local units. So bridging those cultural gaps and actually seeing that 
those moments of understanding and and I'll even saying and and certain prejudices kind of get erased and preconceived notions and generalizations and everything go away. Those are the two things we that we really enjoyed. So we said, okay, how do we do that? And then how do we keep to our to our animal rights, you know, our animal rights and our vegetarian beliefs? And 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 so then we decided, okay, what if we do this? What if we create stories working with local communities? A lot of the communities that we had been working with before in, in on the media and film projects that uh, we create stories that help bridge those cultural gaps. And we we become like a medium for the communities to tell those stories that then our guests would live for the you know, one to two weeks, or in some cases, three weeks while they travel with us. And then keep that all being vegetarian and then vegan and then keeping to all that, keeping cruelty-free, keeping no nothing that's exploitive of animals. And at the same time, then we realized that that would be also a cultural exchange where then people could share those certain values and, and certain common grand ideas with each other. And then that's how we started 19 years ago. And uh, we started with three trips in one country in India. And now we do, prior to COVID, we were doing 27 tours a year. We say 27 stories a year in, in eight different countries. And now we do this year going to do 20 stories in nine different countries. So, yeah. So that was how that kind of came around. I love the, the term stories for a tour. <laughs> It's like an immersion experience, you know. You're you're going to be entering a story. I love that. Yes. I'm. I've, that's that's so interesting. And do you market it that way? We we you know we we didn't before because we thought it would scare people, and then we decided, hey, you know, this is what we do, and this is what the experiences people are going to go on. Um, this is what the communities have put their time into. So let's just be let's be completely honest. It wasn't being not honest before, but let's not just market it as as. A trip because we we even think that even if somebody's not going to travel with us, hopefully even then by kind of reading on the way that we do it, that a will motivate other travel companies, and we're hoping other vegan travel companies to do similar. And at the same time, it may kind of help people's approach on okay, if they're going to go to another place over here, maybe there's a different way of doing it. It's not like for us, it's never about building a holiday or a vacation. It's never about a series of sites that people are going to see. We literally create a story with local communities that help bridge those cultural gaps. And then at the same time, people will live those stories. We do classic storytelling as far as the first act, second act, third act, everything like that. And then everything else becomes part of that story. And then at the same time, we are able to help communities that otherwise, a lot of these communities that don't have tourism programs, develop sustainable tourism programs where people come in and they genuinely learn learn about the, the local culture but also then there's that every time somebody's learning about a local culture there's also a cultural exchange it goes both directions and so that's what we wanted to do so then we we did how many years ago we did start then saying okay let's just be honest in 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 our in in our in our process as far as on the openness of the process people realize our process when they come and travel with us but let's be honest about it before and one of our people in our company one of our partners one of my close friends said yeah and then this way if people aren't looking for that, they don't they don't come there. They're like, oh, well, this is totally different than what I was looking for. So that's how we right, kind of, and that's right. why you'll see, like on our website, our itineraries are much more detailed usually than a lot of other travel itineraries. And I, I think our web designer says, can you shorten them down because your optimization score is not good? We're like, no, this is part of the process. So they know about it before, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So our, our it, it sounds like a, a cultural immersion. And it, yes. cultural in all ways. You're 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 meeting people and hearing about their lives and their stories, and you're immersing yourself in that and their food and everything. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. 
And we have lines in the story and goals and everything. And even we have, and even when we're telling the story, we, in, in addition to kind of the classic storytelling structure, we also have certain things that we've, that we've realized o- over the years prior to this of what differences people have. And we, we actually call it relatable. We actually have a, a, a way of doing it. We make sure that then these elements are all these story elements, plot points as such, are all in, kind of incorporated in the stories that the communities are telling for people. Okay. So for people who are listening, who haven't been on your website, is there something, could you explain one of these stories in in a way so that people who are listening could understand what we're talking about? The relatable part or just a story in itself? Whatever you we, want. We'll, okay. Uh, so ahead. what we do is, so we'll, we'll, with the different communities will kind of that represent, I would say, different parts of that country or the cultures within that country. It's always cultures within a country, mostly, or communities within a country. It's not a single, obviously, as we know, it's not a single culture. It's not a single community. Mm-hmm. But all these cultures and communities are part of making that country what that country is today, of, of what people are, are understanding of that country and the people in that country to this day. So we will go with from each of the different communities there. And we will, the first thing we do is we ask them, what what do you want people to know about your communities and and where have you been and where 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 you come from where are you going where you know as far as on a on a on a kind of more of a how would you say on a more customs rituals traditions we there's so much if we look at even the things that the certain conflicts that people are having here culturally and, and within cultures and communities in America similar is happening everywhere around the world we have so much more in common then we do different. And so we want people to explain that, to, to let people know from their point of view, not from the tourist brochure point of view of what a country, when you're going into somewhere, but actually from the community's point of view. And there's a lot of stuff that's really great. There's the triumphs. And of course, there's the tragedies. And so we want to hear from the communities about what they want that will help people to understand that. And we do that through a relatable system. And just for reference, the first one, can I go over this real quick? I'll try to go over sure. this as quick as I can. Yeah, no, okay. we got time. This is important. Okay, so we consider like, there's like the big nine cultural attributes that people unfortunately often see as barriers and walls. And that's because they have been used by divisive, divisive barriers by politicians, religious leaders. We can go down the, the list, right? So <laughs> Yeah, we know that. <laughs> yeah. It's all the psychopaths. So, uh, exactly. <laughs> so the first one we call is ours for religion, of course. And that's one of the big ones. And it's, you know, and, and but religion, it, you know, communities have been linked by religion because mostly you'll find much, especially in Southeast Asia and South Asia, by trade and tradition, among others. It's It, it has helped to define, unite and separate societies and communities equally, as we know. It's provided codes of conduct, living and at times adapting to local norms and transforming itself in morals and cultures, but equally challenging and changing them. And it's constantly evolving. And so we like to present in the story the meanings, whys, hows, what's and whens behind beliefs and uh, the uncanny kind of similarities and threads that are all between them. So that's one. Another, of course, is eating. Eating, as, as anybody knows, cuisine is like a gateway, like language in, into, into a local culture or community. And, and that's, and we do that through, from enjoying a local home cooked meals with families and learning how to prepare their local generational kind of recipes that have been passed down and down to helping out at family farms, learning about the local dining etiquette, history, heritage, and connections that from centuries of also intermingling of people, it's never been separate. If you even look at how dishes are, even and what ingredients are used and why they make things this way, it actually has to do with the intermingling of people, often through trade 
which is then developed and through, you know, cultural traditions and what have you. So kind of understanding on how the, their local cuisines have become what they are today. Next one is language. We have daily language lessons that are taught. We have words of the day cards like this. This is for Lao. Bye-bye. Um, and we have da daily language lessons and kind of everything in the cards that we go over. And, and the link between languages and history is also, it's huge. And the community interactions, what communities have interacted with each other, what words have been adopted in, how this language has transformed, how do you trace language to also people's movements over, you know, not just decades, not just centuries, but over millennia. And again, back to trade as well. And the universal quest for the meaning, politics, prayer, power, everything you can find in words and where they've been adapted from and how they've come in, scripts as well. And again, it does show not so much the differences. The more you learn about languages, the more you see the commonalities. Then, so that's our REL. So now we're up to arts. I'll go quicker on this just as we go through. It's so the arts is like traditional dance to contemporary village folk, to local artisans, alternative musicians, and filmmakers. And we learn firsthand from those who have dedicated their lives to keep these arts alive and the stories, traditions, and so social commentaries and the deep roots that they convey as well as, again, the intermingling influence. I want to say that because there's so much different influence from the people that people have been in contact with through centuries again. The next one is obviously traditions, customs, rituals from personal family, generational com community points of view, which at time we see the traditions, again, a lot of similarities, a lot of differences. But again, even within the differences, you see the similarities and the commonalities, and at, which at times are in sync. But as with the generation to generations, are now sometimes getting debated and are at odds, and but they're constantly evolving, you know, which leads to cohesion and separation at the same time. It leads to unity and divide and everywhere in between. The next one is, of course, attire, the way that the people dress, from traditional dress and influences and the practicalities behind it. There's so much practicalities that, behind how local communities dress. But then at the same time, there's also a lot of traditional and which people have settled into those areas over decades, over generations, over centuries. And then at the same time, as we're going, obviously, between generations on what people are wearing and the kind of the community, spiritual and progressive threads, no pun intended, between all of them. The next one would be building and architecture. Again, huge influences that from all different people, different cultures, similarities, even within the differences, differences within the similarities. It's and uh, even on the material that they use, the way that the designs were done, everything like that. Learning, as we know, is a big one. Education. How are education systems, curriculums? How are they developed? How are they set? We see the conflict that is happening with them in our own country and, you know, in, in America here, while similar, similar things is happening all around the world and has. And obviously what we learn and what we see history as is based on those who have, obviously, how would you say, depending on what perspective and what side of history you're on. And those are changing. Those you've brainwashed us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And they say it's often written by the winners, but it's also often written by just a few of the winners and those that obviously have certain interests and what have you there. And then that transformation yeah. of how it's rewritten and history is rewritten and rewritten. And all of that obviously takes place where? In our educational systems, you know. And E then for etiquette, which is defined by tradition, customs, and social structures, the hows, whys, and whens behind that. So all these, that's, so now we're done with relatable, all those elements we put in with the communities as far as we help them bring those elements out into a story and the story that they want people to, to learn. And we strongly believe that once people learn about each other and get to know more about each other as individuals, that these traditional cultural attributes, which many politicians as well as religious leaders see our walls and differences. Rather, we start to see as similarities that we all share in a positive, meaningful, and hopefully respectful light. So I'm sorry I went on long on that one. 
Oh, no, you didn't. That, it's so interesting. It's really a different travel paradigm. I mean, it's so different. I, I've, I've taken one trip that did maybe like 5% of that, and it was fabulous. But you, you, this whole full immersion thing is, is fascinating. I, I, I just think it's so unique. I am curious, though, because it sounds mm -hmm. like you and your friends all had the same values when it came to cruelty-free and, and, mm -hmm. an and respecting the animals. I would guess, though, you would go into some of these communities and some of their traditions and all would include the use of animals or the butchering of animals or, you know, the use of their their organs and their fur and all that and all. So how do you handle that? What do you do? That That's a good question. What we do, the biggest thing we do is we try to focus on what our common ground is. And even within the communities that are doing stuff like that, we do find that we do have a lot of common ground. And there is a lot of compassion even for animals and for the environment. It's just that some of these traditions and customs have been very much a part of that. So what we do is we put that aside and we say, okay, and when our group is here, we won't, obviously, we, we will not have that where people will be exposed to that. And we're going to focus on the common grounds we have. And then at the same time, even with some hardcore, what people would say hardcore, like the hardcore non-veg community in, in Indonesia, for example, are known as the Batak. Mm -hmm. The Batak people, the hardcore non-veg as they're known as, even within other Indonesian communities, which has over 360 plus different ethnic communities. And they even know like, oh, the Batak, they're hardcore non-veg. But then what we do is we focus on what the Batak's traditional balance has been with, with nature, what their, what their dishes have traditionally been as far as what they grow in their area. And then the non, it's, it's actually, we like, let's say, for example, when we're veganizing their dishes. We, we veganize every single Batak dish that is, would be most, the most common home Batak dishes, let's say. We, we have, and we did that, and it only takes actually removing about two ingredients, removing meaning from the recipe. Saying, okay, we're going to remove this and we're going to replace this with this. Well, in Indonesia, that's easy to replace with because they have tempeh, which is great. It's a great replacement. They also, you know, and then of course there's tofu and then there's also mushrooms and stuff like that. There's jenkol and other things. So we would veganize their dish. And usually, again, in that process, it would be the, the amount of from their recipe, the traditional family recipe, removing one or two items and substituting those easily with other items. And then we, what we do is in their home kitchen is we cook that together. And then we have them taste it and they taste it. And we want to get it as close to what their family recipe is as possible. And we're able to do that. And then it's along that journey, it's, we actually realize they're like, well, this is how we mostly ate when I was growing up back in the village or when we were growing up younger because we couldn't afford meat. So meat was something that we only had once a week or twice a week. So we, we did a lot. So there's this whole then kind of bridging of understanding. And then all of a sudden, even from our point of view, they're like, oh, well, you're not these, you know, you're not these kind of religious vegan fanatics because, you know, you're, and, and why I say religious vegan fanatics is because it's kind of interesting. When I first was in, in going to Indonesia and, and people would know you're veg, right? Whether you're vegetarian or vegan, they would know that they'd be like, oh, you must be a Buddhist or a Taoist. It was immediately all your religious group, right? And when I would go, would go to Sri Lanka, the Buddhists, the, the Theravada Buddhists would say, oh, you must be a Hindu because most it's very, very rare to find a Sri Lankan Theravada Buddhist vegetarian or vegan. It's changing, but back, back in the day. So, oh, you must be a Hindu. But then, of course, the Hindus have a heavy dairy. So sometimes it's more difficult to veganize the Hindu dishes than it is the, uh -huh. the, the, the Sinhalese dishes because of the use of the dairy products so much in it. And then when I was in India, they said, oh, that's some Western propaganda that's bringing in, brought in to infringe on the Hindus. So 
A matter of fact, just right now, we have a, a big event coming up in Indonesia by the Vegan Society of Indonesia, total grassroots local organizations, and the Indonesian Vegetarian Society. The pushback, it was going to be in Jakarta, and then we were going to have a day or so event down in Bali. But Bali, the Balinese Hindu community representatives hierarchy would say, they have objected to it because it's for local, it's done by locals for locals because of the association that they think it will be with Adat, which is local culture, because Balinese Hindus are not vegetarian. And the ones that they're, they're I won't name the organizations, but there's organizations within Indonesia that are garnering a lot of support from locals that are local vegetarian organizations that have a spiritual backing. So why I say that is because, so in, in the largest Muslim country in the world, you get before it was, okay, you're, you're a Buddhist for being veg. And from a primarily Buddhist country of Sri Lanka, you're a Hindu for being a veg. And so it goes down the list. But why I going full circle, then these misconceptions then are there. It's like, wow, okay, this is, this is not so different. There's no spiritual level as far as religious, organized religion level of us. This is like what we were eating, like in the village and you, plant, and you do that now. And and these are the reasons you do it. You know, there's the ethical, the environmental, et cetera, et cetera. But that whole barrier then gets broken down and there is that cultural exchange that happens. So, and a matter of fact, some of the best Batak food that we have in Indonesia on our trips is in Sumatra. And it's made by nuns, Catholic nuns, and they make great Batak. And they're like, we're using the same recipe we almost used to use back in the village. And Sister Florentina and, and the other sisters, they, just, they make it so good and it's really good. So we veganized with them. We had a lot of fun. And they're like, this is just how we used to cook back in the back when we were growing up. So, very interesting. So, so what I'm seeing is you're you're not going in there and imposing like you know we're no. here now and this is how we're going to do it. So you're really gently approaching people and 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 working with their culture and their background, their family recipes and all of that, and kind of getting a, a buy-in and and out of that, yes. it is interesting that you're almost you're influencing the, to restoring themselves back to their own history because i do think that this whole meat thing it it was it, you can kind of see it around the world where it's like oh you know the rich do meat so we need to do meat and isn't it great we can do meat now but they were completely happy for you know centuries yep. <laughs> eating a certain way and it's this kind of a western influence you know that eating meat is yeah. this western influence like they were saying, this is how we cooked and this is how we used to eat, you know, growing up. And yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it's, it, 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 so that whole learning process, I find it's extremely rewarding on a personal level. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite immersive tour yourself? That's a good question. No, not for a, a battery. It sounds like a diplomatic reason, but the actual reason is because each one is a different story and each one being a different story is a unique experience right. for me and that I love to relive and relive and relive. And I, and I am so blessed that I get a chance to do that. I get a chance to do that every year as relive these stories. And, uh, and I feel so grateful for that, actually. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your five friends from four different countries and different faiths? Just kind of, you don't have to give me their names or anything, but it's interesting that okay. you all found each other and decided to do this together because it sounds like you started off with a lot of diversity. Yes, the three of us actually start. We're in the film business together, and we used to do films. The very R.K. Singh, who is the uh, Singji, uh, is uh, which we call him affectionately. He was the first film that I came on to work there. I went to meet him because he was referred by uh, people we knew who had done 
a couple movies in India and they said, look, if you're going to Rajasthan, you need to meet this man and you need to meet RK Singh. He's great. And so on my first very film that I went there, I met Singhji and he was our location manager and, and we became best friends, family, and we have been working together ever since. And so what would, what would his nationality and, and what, what was, what was his faith? He's from India. And is he Hindu? He's Hindu. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So he is Hindu. Okay. Um, The next one. Yeah. Okay, and then there's Nayusi, and she is from Indonesia, and she was raised Muslim Christian. It's kind of her family with both. So she was raised as a Muslim and as a Christian. She'd go to mosque, she'd go to church. <laughs> so, so that's how she was raised. And then, and then there's a, who later came into the picture, but who's become a, a great friend. And actually, we, we first met through activism is Suresh, who is a Hindu in, in, in Nepal. And he's fantastic. And then there's also now Kuku, that's his nickname, who was RK's son. He is a, he's a Hindu. I, there, I, myself, sorry, there was my brother. My brother sadly passed away. He was an independent agnostic. And, and then there's myself, who is, who is a Buddhist. So, and then there is now Shoba as well, who, who, who we're very happy to be part of the team. She's fantastic. And she, she is, um, she's an activist from traditionally from a Hindu family. I would say more independent. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. And it sounds like your your stories, your tours, also are, are have a value of sustainability as well. Yes. Yes. Completely. The idea is there's on two levels. First, fifty percent of all the profits that we make go into community projects, and those community projects are actually with in the, our Veg Voyages Foundation. That's why some people ask, "There's vegan travel Asia and there's Veg Voyages. What's the difference?" So the difference between that is one is the foundation and the foundation has no overhead. It has no marketing overhead. It has no officers overhead. It has no, every dime that goes in to our foundation goes directly into community projects. Uh, And these community projects are based with no fees, nothing. They're just directly into the community projects that we help communities develop. And those range from compassionate education to doing, to doing induction stoves in communities to bring down the carbon as well as to help women with the the respiratory problems. I'll get into that in in, in a second to, to films to other educational projects, to spay and neuter projects, to helping protect marine life reefs. You can go down the list. I say to doing vegan food relief, which we did a lot of during COVID. And there's a, so many projects that we get involved in with the communities. And what we do is we go in with the communities and we ask them, what do they need? What are the problems that they're facing? And then we try to come up together with things about how, that, how we can help with the limited resources we have. So everything from our foundation, 100%, every dime, every dollar goes into those projects. So how does that get funded? It primarily gets funded through the uh, vegan travel Asia. So 50% of all our profits goes to the foundation. The foundation then puts those in the projects or 50, or of that 50%, it directly goes in directly to the communities, not even with the foundation, but during the tours and stuff, we put directly into the communities, into uh, local projects, their educational projects and what have you. So Very that's cool. how yeah. we make, that's how we can give back as much as we can. But at the same time, what we try to do is we try to make sustainable programs that even after these programs that we develop, a lot of times, in areas that they have not had tourism, we encourage them to do these programs. We encourage them to do these same programs with other companies or other individuals or individual tourists. So it's like, okay, these programs that we've developed, you continue to do these because it's a great way for them to do outreach, to introduce people to, to their communities, to their cultures. And at the same time, it's a good way for them to make some extra income which obviously these communities are very much could use. And those extra incomes usually are going into like the woman or what would they call in Nepal, the mother's associations or women associations or the community development organizations or, or associations 
that are for the welfare of the community or the society, different societies in the area. So that's what um, that's how we try to make it as not just sustainable, but long term sustainable. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking about this whole experience that you're providing for people. You know, I had this question. I was wondering if you had any spiritual practices as part of your tours. I mean, do you have times where people are introduced to the spiritual practices of the culture? And mm-hmm. and I, I do want to hear that answer. But before I even get, get that answer, I'm thinking that the whole thing is a spiritual experience, <laughs> whether you Thank have you. spiritual practices or not. It, it really is because you're, you're opening your, your, Anybody who steps into this is opening their heart up to connecting with other people, other cultures. They're opening themselves up to releasing preconceived notions. These are all spiritual practices as far as I'm concerned. Loosening up some of that programming, having it open it up to what's possible here, and then experiencing this kind of deeper connection with people, you know, across the globe who are just have a whole different thing going on. And also a very similar thing going on as, as we really connect with our humanity. So to me, the whole thing is a spiritual experience. But to answer my question, are, are there spiritual practices that happen in, in these story tours? Yes, we, we, believe, as, we believe a big part of obviously of relatable number one is religion, right? In the, in the relatable list. So we introduce them to what the faith is. So the community is there, whether it's at the national, like in Malaysia, it's at the national mosque and we have the Islamic outreach in there and they introduce the whole program about what Islam is, how it's practiced here, how it got here. Um, to also then people about Vipassana meditation, having Vipassana meditation sessions, you know, like when we're in, when, when actually in quite a few of the areas, but including when we're in Nepal, when we're in Sri Lanka. So there's the introduction to the religion as itself, its history, how it's practiced locally, how it actually came to be there. And then at the same time, certain of those practices that are done. And so we kind of combine that. When we Before we were in Indonesia during Ramadan, we would actually then go join a local family for breaking the fast. So And they would make up a, a vegan feast for us. I liked how you said it's a part of the, on, on an open mind. One of the biggest things that we say to everybody, we say at the beginning of our trips, as well as we always say, Bring your passport. The two most important things, or I guess it would be three, the two most important things you can bring is a passport and an open mind and an open heart. I, I, we like to categorize that as one thing because an open mind is an open heart. Mm-hmm. An open heart is an open mind, right. you know, both directions. So, and a passport. That's, that's what you need. Everything else you can get. <laughs> Everything else you can find to get along the way. But those two things you need to bring. And there's a lot that we cover because even though a two-week story seems like, oh, that's a long time. It's not. I mean, there's so much... As, 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 you know, whether you live in an area for two days, two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years, or what have you, there's something we're always learning, right? So what we do is also along the way and everything that they're, that they're learning, we, they all have a story, a storybook that they can follow. <laughs> so this is like for Laos, right? So then in here, it goes day by day and we have story quotes and everything so they can reflect on it. So they read, we tell them to read the, the, the day story, the day, the night before, and then when they go home, they can kind of reflect for recalling. We also have, I'm sorry, it's, it's not like I have props here, but <laughs> we okay. also have like, we have like, we have religious cards, religious cards, meaning like, and this is one is on Theravada Buddhism. And so this is a set, there's like four different cards here. We laminate them and then we put the whole punch here so they can put them on a ring. So they have a book set that they can go back. They can share them. It's going to handle the wear and tear, no problem. But it does everything from like some like what is the religious structures, you know, what is each part of it? Because then they realize, oh, wow, there's a lot of similarities to the religious structures I have back home and the same reasons. 
uh, to what the history is, is uh, of it there, to the customs and everything, to meditation. So we, uh, along the way, to curry, this is for in Thailand, Kang curry, to the history of curry, and all the different types of curry. So, okay. so we they have this whole card set that gets developed over time, over over the duration, and they have their itinerary that they can reference to, and they have their where is it? Ah, oh sorry, here we go. And they have their language cards. See, so nice, which has the local script and everything there. So all these things that even though they're they're learning and there's a lot to take in, that then when they go home, they can kind of reflect over it and go over it again and again and, and have that recall and. That recall is not, again, what we say, it's not important what they take in up here. For us, what's important is what they take in here. This is what lasts. And that's, yeah. and that's the thing that we hope to try to reinforce. So, yeah. Yeah, the heart. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Well, we've got probably about five more minutes. I, I don't know if you have more you want to share. I, I have a little curiosity. Are, are you involved in a film being made right now yeah. in India? Did yes. I hear that? Mother's Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, I'd love to talk. About it. Thank you. <laughs> so it's uh, Mother's Milk. Um, and this is a film project. We did, when we worked on the Vegan India Conference with an organization called Vegan First and my friend Pollock met that back in 2019, we, we decided, OK, let's have a conference. Let's bring together a bunch of people there. They can talk with local activists. We can all share ideas. One of the people, one of the people that we brought there is a great filmmaker known as Keegan Kuhn, who of course did, was a co-director on Cowspiracy, What the Health and the Medicine as a producer. And, and so we were hoping that when he came there and the idea would be, okay, it's not so much from what the people are going to watch to learn, but hopefully inspire local filmmakers and local activists to make a similar movie. So I will make it a short story. So he came there, he did a great job, motivated lots of people, which was great. And then, and then after the vegan, this was in 2019, the Vegan India Conference. And after that, I was trying to follow up. Our film, did we motivate someone to make this movie? You know, to not make necessarily the cowspiracy of India, but to make a film that deals with the dairy industry, which is a very, the dairy disaster, as we like to call it in India. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, big time. And then, and then as it would, I called Pollock, my friend, I said, Pollock, do you know, because she, she would know. And I said, did anybody from there? do you know of any of that movie being made? And she said, well, no, not really, but there's a couple people that were in the process or talking that I heard about. So I said, okay, get, if you can give me their numbers. So then one of the people, I, I talked to everybody that would, of the numbers I had, but one person stuck out to me and that who has become a very close friend, Harsha, was was doing it. It was developing, some, uh, developing a project and he wasn't sure. At first, it was going to be a series of kind of shorts on it or this or that. But his when I talked to him, his, his his story ideas and his approach and his research and his and most of all his passion I would say was contagious and and I said Harsha let's do it let's just make this movie so then we and let's make it as a feature and and let's let's tell it the story from beginning to end and cover all the and cover all the questions all the all the I will say the excuses um, all the the myths the myths are huge and 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 we did and and he was he's a fantastic director he's actually. From someone that came from the film business long, long ago, my past life, it seems like he was the best director I've ever worked with. And his his passion and his storytelling, it would commit was great. So very, very proud of the film. And it is called Makadud. It's being shown at like kind of a theaters and public screenings and campus screenings and everything across India right now. It's shown at some festivals as well at the Jaipur International Film Festival, one best documentary, best director, best screenplay, which is fantastic because we didn't think even an Indian festival would pick up this movie because of the controversy and the dairy industry is so influential and powerful in India. Uh -huh. But not only did this film festival pick it up, but they award, gave it these awards. So very cool. And in addition to that, it's free, available to see. We wanted everybody to see it. The idea is not 
There's no, not a, not, I would even say a pesa of, of profit thinking on this. We wanted everybody to see it. So we were like, okay, if it goes on Netflix there, Netflix only has this amount of percent of the market, which is a very small percent. All the streaming channels do. And the Amazon Prime only has this. So what is the, that's not, the idea is we want everybody in India to know somebody that's seen the movie or has seen the movie. And so we said, okay, what is that? We just make it free on YouTube. And we have these public screenings. And every time we say, hey, if you liked the movie or if you hated the movie, let your friends see it. And so that's what we're doing. That's where it's showing now. But people can watch it on YouTube. There's a English version. There's the Hindi version. The English version, surprisingly, on YouTube has age restriction on it. I don't know why, but maybe because of some of the content being graphic. Yeah. But the Hindi version does not. <laughs> so, and we also have a Tamil version, a version coming out now that's going to be in Tamil. We have a, a version with that. It, it's also going to come out in about six or seven different languages or dialects in India as well. So, And it's very, we try to present the story as factual based. We actually had, how would you say, like town hall at that time was during COVID. So we made this all during COVID, even trying the units, the Harsha was there with his team traveling around in, in, in India. This was during COVID. So even during this time, they traveled over 20,000 kilometers, actually, and doing interviews and doing all that. So, But what we did is we actually did ta- town halls on Zooms from people from different communities, different economic classes, different every, you know, different dietary backgrounds, everything. And we, and we asked the questions, all these questions that we thought, what would hold somebody back from doing this or what do they believe? On, on, on dairy and how their dairy comes to be in, 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 on their table or in their glass. And, and also on what, would, what do they think about the idea of not having it and what. And so we got all that. We, and we made sure to answer every one of those questions in the movie. And so it goes from a cultural point of view, history point of view. And it's a lot of what they call the myth debunking, myth erases the myths. It clears, clears myth, the room. Mythbusters. Mythbusters, exactly. And so and we yeah, present the fact. Yeah. And then it's up to people. We don't tell them to go vegan at the end. We just say, now now you have the information. Most of it, you're aware. You have these things that are government data that's from the Indian government as well as other agencies. But the, the, that's data now. You know how it happened. So now you can make your own decision and based on, but at least you're aware. And, that's, and that was the key is because when we had these town halls, we were, we were shocked about how unaware and what myths people had about how that dairy comes to their table and to how right. that is. I think those myths are everywhere. Yes. The, the myth about dairy is everywhere. I know it's big in India and it's, it is everywhere. Yeah. And I, I'd like to have a link to your movie and also a link to your, your travel sites and your foundation. I'll put that on the website and the YouTube channel and the, you know, all the podcast pages and all of that so that people can can learn about that because I think yeah dairy in India is something people do not know much about and it is a big big deal as it is here but it's it is I I think people it's something a huge thing for people to be aware of I'm really really glad that your target audience is India (laughs) yes yeah and 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 again there I mean it's the largest dairy producing country in the world and they also are usually in the top three or top five. Some and, and usually on the topper part, uh, the higher part of that scale of being the largest beef exporters, bovine exporters in the world, and, and yeah. that is no myth. It's not a coincidence. I know. It's, it's all it's interlinked. Not. I know. Yes. Right. Um, and even right. even the largest vegetarian country in the world, what we found is it, it, it is true that the non-vegetarians are cleaning up after the vegetarians, and and that's yeah. that's a scary statement to make. But when you look at the yeah. data, it's the truth. And but they're not able to even clean up. After the vegetarians good enough, where then they even get that high 
on the bovine export. So yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, and it, that brings us all, all the way back to the very beginning when we were talking about the Ten Commandments and and the the, the Buddhist precepts, you know, abstain from killing. <laughs> We've come full circle. <laughs> exactly. And when people ask me, when I'm in Sri Lanka or when I'm in Lao or in Thailand, and people ask me, why, why, why are you a vegan? And I say, well, the first precept. That's it. I mean, there's one, I know there's one, there's one law, there's one universal law and that says don't harm anyone on purpose. Don't purposely harm anybody. That's all we have to do. We don't need any laws, governments, anything. It's just follow that and we'll be fine. So I am going to close Zach. It was a real pleasure. Maybe I'll have you back on to, to hear more about, more about the movie and other things, but I'm real excited about the business. I'm excited about the travel opportunities you're offering, the spiritual immersion, the experience, the connection, the opening, the hearts, the teaching people about their oneness. It's, it's, it's really, really wonderful work. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you, Carol. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be here. And it's, it's been great talking with you. Thank you. It was really, really fun. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I now close the Spiritual Forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.